Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Billy Aluya. This is Roger Kimmel-Smith for When Humanists Attack, and I am thrilled to be on a Zoom call with my friend and hero, Reverend Billy Talon. Bill Talon is one of the greatest and most legendary performance artists working in the United States today and in the 21st century. Uh, Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping have been on the New York City uh, theatrical and political scene for 20 plus years now. The Rev has also been an enormously valuable political gadfly agitator for a great variety of causes. Campaigns of the Church of Stop Shopping have targeted corporate malefactors such as uh, Starbucks, J.P. Morgan Chase, Monsanto, and most recently Amazon. His books include uh, What Should I Do If Reverend Billy Is In My Store, What Would Jesus Buy, and The Earth Wants You, published by City Lights. He has a podcast, Reverend Billy Radio, Preaching for the Planet, and um, he has a very consistent and compelling message. Bill Talon's quest, as I see it, is to open space in our imaginations and in our waking lives for a, a mass rejection of consumerism and business as usual and fossil fueled climate destruction. And to hold that space open for the collective evolution that he argues is going to be needed if our species is going to survive the apocalyptic times we're in right now. Reverend Billy is one of the most articulate spokespeople we have right now advocating for the values of humanism, for human-centered rather than capitalist organization of society, specifically human scale institutions. He has invaded in favor of neighborhoods and in their defense against the onslaught of gentrification. For, for mental emancipation from advertising and media inscription and conscription, for, for empathy with all our relations from the workers who make our clothing in sweatshops on other continents to our non-human neighbors, for a way of living that seeks right relationships and uh, expanded awareness of all life forms, an awareness that makes responsible planetary citizenship possible. And lastly, there's a spiritual dimension to all of this kind of consciousness, but it, it's one that doesn't require a god or a gods or any kind of religious framework to achieve or use as a basis for action. So that's a mouthful about Reverend Billy, and I'm thrilled to have him with us. My friend Teo and myself are in the Coney Island Museum on Surf Avenue, mm -hmm. which is upstairs from uh, the Sideshow USA. So this is the, the haven of the freaks. Feels good to be here. Why don't you start by just telling us what some of what you've been doing in 2020? You know, if you have 2020 highlights of the church's activities. Everyone has their story of how they've dealt with this radically changed environment. 
which the earth has cast upon us. The uh, Church of Stop Shopping choir, uh, the, the activists who sing, who trespass together in Monsanto laboratories and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies and the back aisle of Walmarts. We uh, had this completely new environment in 2020, and our response is mostly a, a retrospect one because I don't remember having a well-developed strategy at the time that we did it. I think, I think we were operating on just what we saw in front of us. In April, what we saw in front of us was that the Billy Graham Evangelical Association had established a field hospital on 80th Street and 5th Avenue, right next to the, the Metropolitan Museum, run now, of course, with Billy's death, his son, Reverend Franklin. Reverend Flank Franklin Graham is a uh, virulent homophobe. We don't know what that means in terms of his own gayness, but we do know that he shouts from the pulpit that gay people will die in the flames of hellfire. And a very old kind of 1800s, you know, fulminating Old Testament preacher kind of way. And it's easy to see what, what that does. I've lived in San Francisco and New York over the last 30 years. And a drunk father who regrets having a gay son goes and beats his son up as a result of that kind of sermon. And in San Francisco and New York City, those sons are arriving every day. So when suddenly, under the cover of, this is in April, early April, under the cover of a thousand people dying in New York every day, and at that time, that was a very strange thing. <laughs> Not now, regrettably. But uh, we, we saw him sneak into Central Park and bribe officials and, you know, bribe his way into, and suddenly there were 14 hospital tents, like military, big, thick, structured tents with um, hospital capability you know, surgery tables and controlled environments and so forth. And they had some kind of deal with Mount Sinai and they had some kind of deal with uh, St. John the Divine. And uh, we were going there, Tio and Savitri and our daughter Lena, four of us from the Church of Stop Shopping. We went there. We were just going to do a live stream from the edge of it with it in the background, the tents in the background and talk about his racism and homophobia. And then Savitri gives me this rainbow flag that she's brought with. And so she said, walk to the back door of the hospital, plant the flag and come back. <laughs> and of course, uh, it was a brilliant <laughs> improvisational move on her part. And I never came back. I went to the tombs yeah. overnight and into a 14-day quarantine. Very nervous because they took my mask from me. I don't know if that's legal anymore. That was our first outing. The name of that hospital is Samaritan's Purse. It has a very mixed <laughs> reputation as Franklin Graham follows American military adventures around the world and tends to the local populations 
whether they're in Iraq or Afghanistan or Yemen or wherever they are, and tries to convert people, especially the image of Franklin Graham and his people praying over people on their deathbed. Basically, I was telling New York, Savitri was telling New York that this guy was here. <laughs> Nobody knew it. It's like a very feline move. You know, you sort of try to spray this territory that he was trying to seize. All I did was plant that rainbow flag <laughs> about 30 feet from the back door. And suddenly I was yeah. tackled by all of these police people who were acting like soldiers because they were afraid, because Franklin Graham's a good friend of Donald Trump's and because that mega church was one of the very first to support and endorsed Donald Trump in, in 2016. So they were very afraid. And so as a result, I get, I get roughed up, mm. no broken bones. But that was the beginning of our year. In other words, right. walking straight into the impossible destination. And we have had that kind of year ever since. Time and time again, I don't know if the kinds of places we went to, we would have thought of in other years. Usually we go into uh, Walmarts and Starbucks and uh, Monsanto Laboratories, and we opened for Neil Young. The mm. choir and Savitri and I have different places that we go. But this year with the coronavirus, our impulse was to do impossible things. Mm -hmm. we've, we've done that ever since. We did it last week when we, we went to Jeff Bezos, his uh, mansion in Manhattan, and brought in other activists with us, wrote songs for it, and had a, a large kind of funeral for the people that have died inside the warehouses from the infections because mm -hmm. he doesn't let people congregate and share information with each other. He doesn't let, he doesn't let people help each other. So if... 15 or 20 people are gathering in the cafeteria, that means to him and his middle management spies that those people are trying to organize a union and they'll get fired. And of course, some of them are already sick. So Jeff Bezos last weekend, but that, that's the kind of thing we've been doing all year long. What has made the, uh, the flavor of the activism this year feel different to you? Well, we are inside the apocalypse now. We're not anticipating it. We're no longer saying, if you don't do this, that will happen. It's happening. And so, so much has changed. And some of the things that have, are gone now, I'm having some trouble, emotional problems, dealing with the shift. But I used to love the idea of having a career, for instance. I think my Dutch Calvinist relatives and parents in uh, Holland, Michigan, I think that they taught me that a career was something you did on purpose and that that mm -hmm. structure was received like predestination in the Calvinist faith, you know, you just received it from God. And so, of course, I went to New York to be a person with a career. Now I listen I listen to the word career, and what does that mean? It sounds like the cyclone. I'm careering around the cyclone. The wonder wheel is right here, and the parachute jump is over here. And we have all these amazing rides that are stuck in midair. They're frozen. 
and it's dark here in New York right now. And Tio and I, I go out there and walk among the paralyzed amusement park. Mm. Hmm. You know, that's what careers have become. Career, careers have no application. It's impossible to have a career right now. You don't want to. And the earth has done this. The earth with the virus, with the superstorms, tornadoes and hurricanes growing twice their former size every year. I mean, we are in it. It's happening. I remember first encountering you downtown around the time of Y2K after the Seattle protests. There was a sense of a rising movement at that time for global justice. And here comes this preacher with the hair and the collar. You know, it, it was a full frontal attack on uh, you know, our fossil fueled French fried consumerist mentality. But you were getting your feet wet performing this character. I'd like to hear you recount what that was like and how the project got started. There is a past there. And I, I feel it. But the apocalypse is real. The shopocalypse, we've shopped ourselves to death. Just had a very difficult weekend with the Black Friday. I came to New York with history, being brought here by uh, Reverend Sidney Lanier uh, from Tennessee Williams family. And he brought me here thinking that careers still existed. And I think they did for a few years after that time, because I, I remember, I remember magazines and movies and so forth. I remember Sydney mostly now. I, I don't think that I remember so much the career. I remember Sydney's friendship. I love, I love Sydney. And the love of his life, Gene Bennett Webster, and how they persuaded me to not be afraid of Christianity, but rather to uh, appreciate that Americans make the meaning for their lives out of Bible stories. Not, we're not French philosophers here. And so little, little, little parables that have a cliffhanger story structure, you know, a meets B, boom, C, you know, very the simplest possible, almost biologically simple story structure. And they instructed me. That's how Tennessee makes his plays and movies. That's how, you know, Clint Eastwood movies in the 70s, the High Plains Drifter, Pale Rider, they, 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 they brought me to uh, lots of, kind of a secret society of powerful artists in the United States. None of them were Christians. They all were making Bible stories. And I became gradually less and less afraid of my Calvinist relatives who had long before cast me into the flames of hellfire. I don't even want to say the phrase. So I remember Sydney, and I think of Sydney, and I talk to Sydney almost on a daily basis. I talk to him today. Uh, in the uh, woods in Prospect Park. <laughs> the career part was something that would self-destroy 
because it was destroying us. Something about my shouting at passersby, standing in front of the Disney store, shouting at passersby with their children, don't bring your children into this store. Mickey Mouse is the Antichrist. Don't bring 11-year-old Cindy into this store. Nothing but sweatshop goods here. You know, I was making a career. I was shopping. <laughs> and unaware of the hypocrisy there. I said, hey, hey, Sydney, this is the 90s. Everything's dead in New York. What are we doing here? Come on. Nothing's happening here. Everybody's moved away. And he, he said, the New York Times is one block away. Just preach. And, and my, my uh, <laughs> kind of older brother figure, my teacher, Spalding Gray, he said the same thing. He said, just mm -hmm. preach. Just go out there and preach. It's a great idea for this moment in time. And I, I, so I was obeying Roger. I was, I was like, I had teachers and, and models. But now, if Spalding and Sydney were with me right now, I would say to them what I'm saying to you right now. There's been a radical change in the landscape. Careers don't exist. Ambition doesn't exist. Meaning is shifting so radically that language is barely existing. We have to disencrypt the main messages coming to us, the controlling government, the controlling authority is little animals that cannot be seen by the naked eye that look like red soccer balls with axes sticking out of them. We are being controlled by something we can't see or understand. We don't know their language. We have not known the language of the earth for hundreds and hundreds of years since the beginning of the industrial revolution, the enlightenment, we are inside of structures that have been dead for centuries, but they live in us, and they must go away now. The Earth is saying they must go away now quickly. If we are to enter into evolution with the Earth right now, we have to throw a lot of things out the window. Amen. As I know your friend Robin recently uh, threw 14 uh, CD decks into the trash. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how Robin is. You might ask him next time you see him. How is he recycling those old CD decks? Mm. There you go. There's a question for you. Maybe uh, consuming is, is really what we do with these careers of ours and how we should think of it. So your wardrobe. Then and now, I imagine is a key. Do clothes make the man in your case? As, you know, this is kind of a rear guard action. It's firing. It's it's firing your veggie tipped bullets at you know an a, a, an army that is on your tail. It's this is a televangelist outfit, uh, vaguely Elvis impersonating character, and I still have it on me. I wore it at Jeff Bezos's mansion, Black Friday. Uh, no, you wore the green one. <laughs> I wore the green one. Did I? So says the video. <laughs> Tio, was I in the green outfit? <laughs> as green as it gets. And then my, and then everyone else is wearing black. Oscar Wilde said, "The clothes maketh the man." 
I know that we're a fundamentalist nation and that we have people who wear this kind of costume in control of our government uh, until possibly until Biden takes over. I'm not sure. Sartorial Washington, I'm sure, will tone itself down quite a bit if we're able to get to that new dispensation. Well, he's a corporate Democrat. We'll see what happens. I, 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 I see a uh, heightened sophistication there and a nuancing of lapels. I would say that I'm stepping out of this because I'm stepping out of everything I'm doing because the earth is demanding mm -hmm. that we become naked and grow fins and swim <laughs> off into the horizon. I mean, we are in an evolutionary seizure right now. And a lot of what we do is a repetition of, of, of something that is filling up our perceiving of emptiness. We don't see, we don't have the instructions like we used to have. And a lot of us are like Wiley Coyote when he runs off the cliff and then he looks at the camera and doesn't realize he's off the cliff in midair. And we, the viewer on the television, we look and we say, Wiley, Wiley, you're going to fall. And he's like very confident. He's just in midair. It's an expanded moment drama. And then suddenly, for some reason, he sees a firm that's the size of a postage stamp near his foot. And he has dimensionality and he realizes he's just moments from, from crashing into the annihilation of his personal identity. We're watching this, of course, we all know we will die. We're gonna have this moment. It's great theater, people. And, and then the little marks in the air from, from the descent, right? The little wind, the wind animation, right? And then his hat stays where it was and kind of has a life of its own and kind of wiggles in space. And he's gone, but he reappears later like a coyote accordion. So the church of stop shopping, I thought was a really interesting object lesson to look at from a humanist standpoint. You have stuck with it all these years and really taken it quite far. Obviously there's a parody of religion element. I remember you exercising credit cards, but, uh, but it's more like it's something between a parody and something more genuinely religious. You're using words that you have a right to use because I'm wearing this suit, but parody is a meaningless word. Why would you par parody something that doesn't exist anymore? This is the apocalypse, the Greek definition, which is that everything tears up and shakes and then truth is reborn. We have serious work to do. Irony, the arts. What, what are the arts in 2020? No one knows. A Zoom program, they're disappearing. The artists are disappearing. Our hippest New York artists are disappearing into our high school yearbooks. Some kind of revenge there. I mean, the virus has a sense of humor. It seems that the, the Church of Stop Shopping is and ought to be stepping up to, to serve the needs of the moment of a certain population or demographic. I mean, there are things we need as human beings that are our social needs and we have to find them out you know, outside of our walls and in the, in the collective experience in the society and in, and in the Western civilization, in the religions 
pretty much arose to meet those needs. But now, you know, there's this growing unchurched population, even before the 2020 apocalypses, we have this large none of the above, uh, our colleague Vincent calls them the nuns, religiously. And, and yes, that's the biggest church in the United States, none of the above, yes, yes. But your work has, has always sort of aimed itself at that demographic and at those unmet needs. You know, starting from back when uh, you were talking about it in terms of threatened yes. neighborhoods. Yes, yes, those unmet needs were not very often an actual need. They were more like hobbies. I mean, let's let's remember that what you're doing is quoting pollsters here. You know, and pollsters don't exist anymore. Pollsters, shame on them. I mean, get out of there fast. Going around and asking people with questions that are completely prejudicial what they believe. It's a, it's become a whole separate uh, theatrical form that is completely unaware of itself. The New York Times is surprised every election that the polls are way off. <laughs> They still think that they are in such a superior position that when they send their emissaries to the front door, that somebody will be honest with them. The New York Times, they, they basically think they're sort of a, a cross between bankers and therapists. Well, uh, to go to your question, Roger, what did you ask me? How close does your thing come to resembling, you know, the reality of the idea of a church? You do have a, a, a posse, the choir, if not a full, you know, congregation in church speak. You have the folks who are involved in your actions on the street. Religion. God. Let me think about that. Early on, you uh, had this line I totally loved. We believe in the God that people who don't believe in God believe in. Are you still using that one? That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was this this guy, Bill Talon. I should know, bring this. that back. <laughs> May I? May I use it? We believe in the God that people who yeah, don't believe in God believe in, children. Yeah. You see, if you if you believed you had a career, you would have you wouldn't have left that one behind. <laughs> well, I don't know if if. Career planning was ever my forte, even when there was such a thing. <laughs> that always seemed central to what was so compelling in your vision to me. Well, those big old institutions that have dominated us for so many decades and centuries, the church, the military, the government, the corporation, they have been unable to respond in any meaningful way to the changing earth. And the earth is changing because of their policies, but also because of the, the daily living of the people who are members of those organizations. And they have not seen a way to be in any way leaders, to give example, to show the way. And so finally, they've abandoned their institutions. Their institutions don't exist. Mm -hmm. Right now, the environmental movement, which I, I suppose is the kind of big old institution that I, we're most identified with because we're earth, earth justice people, the 
environmental organizations. They're called NGOs, non-governmental organizations. There are like 15 of them, I think. And they all have budgets in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Huge, huge, huge nonprofit corporations. And they're all getting hundreds of millions of dollars from Jeff Bezos because Jeff Bezos has turned into the dirtiest retail company, surpassing Walmart a couple months ago. Putting 1 million metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every week. He has a million and a half employees now. He has to keep going every day. He's making so much money. Wasn't there an article that he made $14 billion in one day? He's the richest man in the world. And every day that he can keep the big old institutions away from him, he's, he's becoming this one-man nation state. And uh, he likes it. He wants to go on for a while. So anticipating an avalanche of lawsuits from these big environmental organizations, rightfully so. I mean, a lot of them make their money suing. Uh, he's just showering them with money. And of course, in the, in the contract, as they accept the money, is, is the agreement not to litigate. His particular model of convenience, which is touch the screen and it comes into your hands in 24 hours, has been the new elixir of Wall Street. They have simply elevated his value on paper. I think his actual money is much, much less. I think it's very modest. It's only 190 billion. <laughs> right. I, I think his I think his paper money is also the biggest fortune in the world. <laughs> but when they say he's the world's first trillionaire, they're talking about that Wall Street market value. But I'm glad to be here talking to you in the Coney Island Museum. I'm surrounded by signs that were up in front of Luna Park. And I'm just feeling the, the history of Coney Island. I'm feeling the history of people who self-ingested the apocalypse, who found a way to blow up. Well, they were freaks in many cases, so they... They were not being received in any structural way by society. They didn't have careers. They were not given any way to be with us. And so Coney Island was where they could be, the kind of most famous, immovable, carny place. I've been a sidewalk barker here, and I love this place. I rose from the position of being a sidewalk barker to the Neptune king of the mermaid parade one year, Savitri, my oh. partner was the mermaid queen. And we, we uh, led 250,000 people up and down the Surf Avenue. So I love this place. Oh, maybe that was a career. I hope not. Was that a career? Oh, God. Well, that was really a career highlight. You know. It's in the you, highlight you, reel. Is that in, the I think it's, is that in our highlight like reel? Your, your career like your hair is allowed to have highlights. <laughs> That's a very sensitive thing to say. It makes me want to put my hand on your knee. I suppose preaching is not that different from sidewalk barking. It's an oratorical art at which you're skilled and you developed, you know, messages that go with it. Get in touch with your, with your freakalooya within. Stay in Coney Island. Stay here. This is the new America. We'll be ready when the apocalypse comes. 2020. Yeah. Apocalypse is around here somewhere.
I've always thought that there was uh, a close relationship between the comic and the spiritual or my notion of spirituality, but I've never been able to really explain it fully or unpack it. We have a challenging time in which all those kinds of questions of what is the position of, of humor, uh, how is that relational um, to spiritual reverence? Uh, we mm -hmm. would be raised, certainly I would be raised, if I was ever raised, by my Calvinist parents in Holland, Michigan, uh, I would be raised to not tell a joke in the middle of a church service. But uh, mm -hmm. now those structures are gone. And uh, with the aid and with the help of the biggest church in the country, the none of the above church, <laughs> I think that we might be ready finally to... Uh, to bring back the uh, the humor to the spirit. Um, you look at uh, what the earth is saying to us. Uh, take a look at evolution. In the last extinction, 70 million years ago, the dinosaurs turned into birds. Birds are sometimes very beautiful, regal, but they're also funny, aren't they? They're little miniature feathered dinosaurs that fly around. <laughs> and they stand on branches and sing. Now that made it sound like a cruel joke. You dinosaurs, I will condemn you to flying around and standing on branches and singing. It does present evolution as a kind of, you know, uh, a, sick, a sick joke maker. We come with our traditional culture to it. We come to our idea of humor and we come to it and we look at that and we say, oh, wow, 14 million individuals sacrifice their lives so that you could have a fin growing out of your back. If you speed that up, it's animation in a Walt Disney sort of way. There's a reason that so many of the, the Disney uh, heroes are animals. They have a, a sort of nightmarish humor about them. Mickey Mouse is a nightmare the most famous corporate logo in the world, a definite mm -hmm. nightmare. Mickey Mouse scares children and then they like him. But at first, being a father, I saw that happen. Analyzing something by insisting on old academic ideas of aesthetics and psychological states and modes of language and so forth, as your unasked for pastor, I'll just give you this advice. You need for that kind of thinking to be um, blown up mm -hmm. and walk away from it. And it's dangerous because it might, it might also blow up relationships around you and your relationship to transportation and food. And I mean, God knows. The thing is, the earth is telling us that we, we don't know now and God doesn't either. The earth is saying, let go in a big way. Don't go to a yoga retreat for 14 days. Let go in a big way. Amen. Uh, Holy. Let go, Alulia. Whoa, what's happening? <laughs> what's happening to my mind? <laughs> oh, my <goodness. laughs> Alulia. <laughs>
Don't be too cruel to me. I'm doing the best I can. I'm preaching to Roger and Robin. Okay, next question. Uh, consumerism? You trained <laughs> us to consume. 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 Where did we learn this? On the Zoom. Consume. Consume. You learn it. Let go. Alleluia. Yeah, let go. Alleluia. My God, we've got a convert here. What dangers do you see in the attempt to reclaim aspects of normality? Is it, is, won't it just be shopping? In a nutshell? There is no new normal that doesn't exist. It's gone. I believe that people are returning to some degree to the old idea of whatever that is that you get when you depend upon the arrival of products. Amazon is making billions on the pandemic. And that's because people are buying a lot more than just food. So we're aware of that. And we know that it happens that for 20 years, we were saying consistently the thing that needs to be said at this very moment. Therein lies the, the challenge right now for me as a pastor is how can I, how can I walk away from these belligerent structures that are bequeathed to us from these old institutions that want to kill us? How can we get to the earth? But then we want to bring people with us away from the shopping and to do that, you have to circle around and go back and talk to people. Hopefully the circling back around to the people who are going to the phone and going to the computer and calling Amazon, hopefully are going back to them. We'll be informed by something in our language, something in how we sing and how we are, something about the power that we may have. Something from the earth comes into us. When we're done here, Tio and I will go down to the ocean. We'll talk to the ocean and ask the ocean to talk to us. We don't have a name for it. We don't know what that is. I just know that I felt it when we went to Standing Rock and at dawn we went to the river and we held hands with people from around the world who had been invited there on Thanksgiving week. What was that, four years ago? Three years ago? And we were invited by the wise man to sing our song or pray our prayer to water. We would all become water protectors before facing the militia up on the hill watching us. And we started singing and talking and some next to me were some Maori people from New Zealand and they were, they were <laughs> scared the hell out of us because they went into their... <sighs> You know, and but everybody was going into different kinds of facial maneuvers and gestures and dances. And we went into uh, 
our church of stop shopping song about water. Water, water, flow into me. Warm river body from here to the sea. Water and so forth. But all of a sudden I stepped away from all of us and kind of got a little bit of distance between me and the hundreds of people and from all the tribes and the cacophony of voices started sounding like water, water, water in a waterfall, white water, rough water. <laughs> We are water, aren't we? We are the earth. And going to the ocean and talking to the ocean and then waiting for the ocean to talk to us and just feeling the surf here on the edge of this place that for 135 years has been the destination for people that had only a personal apocalypse. They had nothing given to them from society, but they had love. They were often in love and they found a way to love themselves and they would come here and they would be their eccentric self for enough money to live. And so the earth had a way of, of coming up through the cacophony of water inside of us here in all of our tribes in those days, the tribes were different kinds of personalities. People with no legs and arms, people with all kinds of gender difference, <laughs> mm -hmm. all kinds of things that we now, in the time of Black Lives Matter, we are defending all the people that were here that at that time were not defended. Mm -hmm. But they gathered together. They made a lake. They made a water together, and they became an ecosystem. And one thing that we're finding in our work right now, Roger and Robin, is that the human ecosystem, where people who are different from each other gather in a commons in a park on the street, that we give to each other, we share, we give our skills, we, we, we live together, we have names for each other, we develop new language, new dancing, new music together. The original ecosystem of humanity is the place where we find that we can imagine suddenly how to defend the life of the earth. The environmental movement has not done that. They're making databases and computers and litigation and lobbying cocktail parties. A lot of the people inside of environmental movements, institutions are just making a living being there. They're making a living for their families. Being a father now, I understand that. I, I'm not going to be uppity about that. But a lot of them are stranded inside of these corporate organizations where the CEO is a white male who makes a million dollars a year. Naomi Klein discovered that one of the big NGOs actually had oil leases. 
they, they start <laughs> they start imitating the corporations that they oppose and they become the corporations mm. and they don't share their money with us mm. i remember being in the sierra club sitting at a table with these honchos around me and uh, i remember saying give it give us thirty four thousand dollars and we will go across the state of pennsylvania and we will entertain people who are activists against fracking and they know that you support fracking or did for many years. And I will say, we will say that the Sierra Club has made it possible for us to lead this parade down your main street and sing for you and raise money for you in your fundraising events. And the Sierra Club helped us do this. And that will be your way of apologizing to these people because you made a terrible mistake. They didn't want to do that. I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> I mean, $34,000 to the Sierra Club is nothing. Mm -hmm. And they don't communicate with local people. And they should. They should. Now, there's certainly a missed opportunity or an absence of, of vision. They don't want to have this uh, self-anointed minister representing them. And the people in the Stop Shopping Choir from all over the world, all the tribes, all the genders, it's hard to trust us. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I would like to say that the only way the environmental movement can survive right now is by being corrupted by Amazon. And the people who don't accept that money, which might, for all I know, be the Sierra Club. The CEO of the Sierra Club, Mike Brun, makes significantly less money than the, the, the guy that runs the Conservation International and those big outfits. I was on the phone uh, yesterday with one of the founders of Earth First. He's he has an interview in Mike Rosell. He has an interview in in uh, the Earth Alluvia show that's being posted right now. And uh, Earth First was right. Redwood Summer was right. Julia Butterfly Hill and the tree sitters they were right. And they look good now, mm -hmm. in retrospect. They were talking to the ocean. We don't know that language anymore. We, we have not known how to listen to the earth and hear what to do for a long time. Now's the time to really insist and, and go into a woods at night. Go, go and, and be with the ocean and just let it come into your body and, 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 and let it come to you in dreams and thoughts. It's the kind of education that has always been denied us by the colleges and so forth. It's the kind of education that was denied us since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Indeed, since Christ Christianity 2,000 years ago, we have, we have bad preparation for what's happening right now, but that's kind of why it's happening. <laughs> so the Earth has taken control. The virus is creating communities, creating... Uh, ecosystems of humanity, economies of empathy. We will depend upon each other and we will depend upon each other to be eccentric, depend on each other to change in ways that we can't even describe or recognize. And we will have new borderlines between emotionally and mentally uh, ill people and uh, people who are original. The arts are gone, the museums, will be left there. Maybe not the freak museum. Come here. 
come here to Coney Island. <laughs> Here's a good museum. It's not MoMA. It's not the Metropolitan. It's not the Whitney. <laughs> but boy, is it interesting. The lives I feel here, the struggles I feel. Oh, I feel it in my heart. These people went down to the ocean. They went down to the ocean. <laughs> I'm going to go back down now to the ocean and um, ask the ocean to tell me what else I could have said here. But all of you out there, all you little ocean beings from one ocean being to another, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, those of you who stuck stuck it out, hallelujah. Uh, find your ecosystem. You know, walk into that super conscious ecosystem, that magical place where you scoop up a, a handful of forest floor and there's hundreds of thousands of living beings there looking back at you. Um, you've got to get back into the back into the miracles. That sounds a little bit like a bumper sticker. I've got to go back to the ocean now and start my sermon over again. Bye, everybody. Evolutia. Thank you. Take care, Robin. I'm grateful. Thank you for joining us on When Humanists Attack. Do all those things, like us and share us and uh, subscribe to this uh, fabulously weird little podcast channel. Excellent. That's perfect. <laughs>